You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Last week, we started looking at the high priestly prayer. We saw specifically how uh, Jesus, um, in preparing for the cross, his chief concern was how to bring God glory through it leaving us an example that our chief concern each day must also be how we will bring God glory with the work that we're called to do. And so we talked about the, the, we talked about the, the crucifixion, and then we gave some application points for how this prayer that Jesus prays about himself really applies to us and how we can take principles from it. So we talked crucifixion-wise, how the timing of the crucifixion was determined by God alone, right? That the hour had come based on God's timetable. The goal of the crucifixion was the glory of God through the glory of the Son, So ultimately, the crucifixion was about God receiving glory, and we see that through Jesus dying and then being uh, exalted once again to heaven. Um, We looked a little bit about what it means to uh, see God as glorious and for him to have glory in that noun format, and then for us to glorify him from the verb side of things. And so um, the glory of God being his divine goodness on display And then we glory in him or we glorify him by celebrating his divine goodness. Um, We talked about the result of the crucifixion being the salvation of mankind. Um, But we talked about the fact that we we have to kind of know the work that's assigned to us because we see Jesus glorifying God by completing the work given to him. And so we talked about knowing what we are commanded to do through the word, seeking to be obedient to it, but doing it with the right purpose. So not just doing what we're supposed to do, but doing it from the perspective of how we want to celebrate uh, God's goodness. And so I challenged you last week with uh, trying to think through what's one thing you're going to do this week and how will we glorify God to the fullest in that activity. And so hopefully you had some time to ponder and and seek to apply um, some of that this week. That brings us to verse 6 in John chapter 17, where Jesus turns his attention to praying specifically for his disciples, and I think we can be included in this mix as well, even though um, down in verse 20 he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, and then he begins to pray for us, and so I think all of this kind of uh, can be viewed through Jesus praying for his immediate disciples and also those that would come later. So he says uh, in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them." From a summary sentence standpoint, I want us to see today that God does everything necessary to save us and keep us saved. And while he does leave us in the world where we are susceptible to attack, he promises to sanctify us. I left out a word here. So that we can impact the world through our endurance. God does everything necessary to save us and keep us saved. And while he does leave us in this world where we are susceptible to attack, he promises to sanctify us so that we can impact the world through our endurance. For our kids, God saves us, keeps us saved, and makes us more like Jesus so that we can impact the world. So what we see through 
the way that Jesus is praying here, he is acknowledging that it's God who does everything necessary for salvation, right? That, that God is the one who brings us to the point of being saved. Um, and we can rejoice in that. And then God goes even further in that he maintains our salvation. He keeps us saved. But then he also starts praying to his father about how uh, he recognizes and he's not trying to, to go against this plan, that, that the plan is to keep disciples here on this earth. And so while he does leave us in this world, he talks about us being susceptible to the attack of the enemy, right? And we know already that he's prepared his disciples for persecution and tribulation that's to come. So we're susceptible to attack. But in this, he promises to sanctify us, that, that sanctification process, making us more like Jesus. So, so we're enduring just like Jesus. He promises to sanctify us so that we can impact the world through our endurance, we're going to see elements of, of everything contained in this sentence today, how, how God does do what is necessary to save us. He keeps us saved, and then he equips us to impact the world as we are enduring until he comes again. For our kids, God saves us. He keeps us saved, and he makes us more like Jesus so that we can impact the world. Let's see, number one, first of all, that we have a responsibility to believe. We see here in this passage that I'm saved by responding to the work of God. For our kids, I can be saved by believing what God says. What we see here in this uh, portion of Jesus's prayer is his acknowledgement that it's, that it's God who's responsible for our salvation, that, that he is the one who is making this happen. Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave, gave me out of the world. And he talks about, them, about us belonging to God, right? And us being given to Christ by God the Father. And this aspect of us keeping the word. And he goes on to say that everything that's been given to him has been given to us. And, and I've given them the words that you gave me and they've received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they believed that you sent me. All mine are yours, yours are mine. I am glorified in them. So we see God's responsibility over our salvation. That it's, it's something where we should see a perspective of us belonging to him, being given to Christ by him. Right, And it's, it's uh, truth that's being passed on to us even by Jesus. As he speaks these words of God that, that come from the Father through Christ to us, we see the disciples being highlighted as individuals who have kept the word, uh, which is another way of saying that they have, they've heard it and they've believed it and they've responded to it. They've obeyed the gospel as we see in some passages in Scripture talk about. So here, number one, I would say we must believe that salvation is all of God and not of me. It's always been part of God's plan. Right? Here we learn that God had plans for us and our salvation before the foundations of the world. Right? Like Our salvation is rooted in eternity past where, where God was already uh, knowledgeable of, of what he planned to do right? and begins to orchestrate these events himself through his power, right? bringing us into existence through creation and then calling us to salvation as he always designed to do. We believe that salvation is all of God and not of us, and so therefore he gets all the glory for it, right? None of us can boast, Ephesians says, because our salvation is completely rooted in the work of God. Number two, I must believe the words of God through the person of Jesus. And really what's being talked about here is us believing in the deity of Jesus, right? Jesus ties himself so closely to the Father to where you can't have salvation and separate the two as though, hey, I'm all about the Father, but I want nothing to do with Jesus. 
right? That's what the Jewish people are kind of stuck in is that they're still in this routine of looking to the God of the Old Testament, but have rejected his revelation in the new, right? They've rejected the Messiah. They've rejected Christ. And Jesus says, look, salvation comes to those who see me as an extension of the Father, who see me as being sent by the Father. And it's, it's not that, um, that we can even blur the lines and say that Jesus is the Father, right? We see this unity in, in Christ and the Father, but we can't say that, well, there's just Jesus, right? That, that we used to understand God as the Father in the Old Testament, and now we see him as Jesus in the New Testament, and, and we, we lose what Scripture reveals about the Trinity when we try to say that there's Jesus only. Um, and it's a, it's a difficult doctrine to wrestle with, right? And especially when you're younger as a kid, trying to even explain to a kid the doctrine of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But we see them working in unity here, and Jesus talking about the fact that um, the disciples have kept the word by believing that he has been sent by the Father. They've received these words. They've come to know the truth. They've come to know you through that truth. They believe that you sent me. It's these that he identifies as those that are no longer part of the world, right? He says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for these that have come out of the world, that you've given to me, for they are yours. We believe that salvation is all of God, not of me. We believe that the words of God through the person of Jesus can save us. My responsibility is to receive the word, believe it, and respond to it in obedience. That's what it means to keep the word. I think we see a great example of this post the disciples. So outside those who walked and talked with Jesus daily, I think we see this same type of testimony in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. This was the first chapter that we preached on when we planted our church nine years ago, right? And, and we, we honed in on these people at this church in Thessalonica and the response that they had to the gospel that even enabled them to have a church planted in Thessalonica, right? And it says in verse 2, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul says, we know your believers we know that God chose you before the foundation of the world to be a believer. And how do we know that? Because we came preaching the word and you responded to it, right? We see the fruit of, of what it looks like to labor with the gospel and see an individual's heart turned by the Holy Spirit to receive that gospel. And he says, we're, we're, we're blown away in amazement at the work that God is doing in your life because we've shared the word and you have kept the word, right? You've responded, you've believed, salvation has come to you a salvation that ultimately is all of God. We believe 
in this gospel to be saved. We respond to the work of God, and we can be saved, not because of our work, but because of Christ's work. Number two, we trust. What we see in Christ's prayer is that we have much to trust in as well when it comes to the security of our salvation. Back in John chapter 17, verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. We're called to trust, and we can trust that we will be preserved by the character of God. For our kids, I will remain saved because God is faithful to finish my salvation. We're preserved by the character of God, not by our performance, not by our goodness, but by the character of God. Number one, I can rest knowing that the Son prays for me to enjoy unity with others. I can rest knowing that the Son prays for me to enjoy unity with others. He's praying that his disciples would enjoy a deep level of unity or oneness that he compares to the oneness that he feels towards the Father. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, given me that they may be one, even as we are one. He prays for a oneness with other believers. Why? Because he knows that we need each other to persevere, right? If we're going to endure to the very end, we don't do it in isolation. We don't do it by ourselves. We do it with other believers. So he knows that for, for his disciples to make it to the end, and they're going to have some tests to their unity right off the bat, right? Like, Will they accept Peter back into the fold after he denies Jesus? Will, will they each come back and accept each other after fleeing and abandoning Christ, right? And then even as they start to, to plow forward with the church, I'm sure there's tension in trying to figure out the leadership structure of how they're going to plant churches and how they're going to establish elders, right? They don't have anything to go off of except for the leading of the Holy Spirit. They don't have any other church to look to to pattern their church after, Right? There would have been all kinds of possibilities for tension, and yet when we read the book of Acts, what do we see? Constant unity. We see them coming back to constant unification around who God is, who Christ is, what he's been calling them to. Right? And that's a result of Jesus praying for that. He's praying for unity because he knows we will need it to persevere. And our unity comes from our knowledge and belief in God's character. It's the things that unite us, right? It's where we find that unity, in the, in the, in the consistent beliefs that we can see in scripture, right? So there may be a lot of differences in who we are, but we can be unified in these things that are so important, particularly those things that surround the character of God. But there's also this role where we have to pursue this type of unity too. So Jesus is praying for it and it's promised to us, but we have to do our part as well to pursue that type of unity. And a big part of that is pursuing reconciliation. Reconciliation when when we know we've done something wrong, when we know we have hurt somebody, and we pursue making that right. I mean, I was blown away in an interview this week, interviewing somebody as a potential teacher for next year, and we were just talking about a lot of different things. Um, one of the things that stood out to me is he was talking about just a interaction that he had had with a coworker recently. Um, he knew he had made a comment that 
hurt that coworker, even though he didn't mean for it to. He could kind of see it on the coworker's face. Um, but they were so busy in the midst of what they were doing that he couldn't really address it at that time. And he said, the next day I realized I could have just kind of kept going on, that she was fine, would have never thought twice again about it. He said, but I just wasn't right. I didn't feel right about the fact that, that there may be this fog or haze over our relationship moving forward because at times she may remember that interaction that we had. And so he said, I went to her and he said, I just sat down with her and he said, I want to apologize for what I said to you yesterday. He said, I didn't mean what, what it sounded like and just kind of walked through this piece of reconciliation with her, right? Um, that should be common amongst us as Christians, that when we've hurt somebody and we know we've hurt somebody, we pursue reconciliation. When somebody has hurt us and maybe they don't know it, or even if they do know it, that we still, as the hurt individual, try to pursue reconciliation with somebody. We need that type of unity if we're going to make it. If we're going to endure to the end, we need that type of unity. Jesus prays for it, and it's something that we can participate in as well by doing our part to pursue unity with other believers. Number two, I can rest knowing that the Son prays for me to experience true joy as well. Not only is he praying that we will experience unity as believers, he's praying that that unity will also result in a fulfilled joy. He says in verse 13, talks about how he's kept them. The only one who's been lost is Judas, and that was by design. Verse 13, but now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Right? So Jesus is praying that not only will we experience unity with each other, that we'll also experience the joy that he's been talking about too that can come to us. Even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of tribulation, he's praying that we will experience this promised joy that he's talked about. Belief in God's word and joy unity with others will lead to that type of joy. And then the third thing that we can rest in is we can rest knowing that the Father keeps me to fulfill his name. I can rest knowing that the Father keeps me to fulfill his name. Jesus makes reference several times to uh, the Father keeping his disciples in his name. All right, so talks about us keeping the word. So the word's delivered to us. We respond, we obey, we keep it. Now Jesus is praying that the Father will keep us in his name. And what he means that by that is that the character of God would be fulfilled in us, that, that who he is, the promises that he's made, how he has revealed himself would be absolutely evident in our lives. My preservation is grounded in the character of God, right? We trust in the name of the Lord our God. What does that mean? It means that who he is gives us assurance that he will save us. Now let's think about what we mean by his name. Old Testament right? He reveals himself as the I am, right? He reveals himself as the I am, and, and, the, and the Jewish people would have understood him in that sense. It's what incites such an a antagonistic feeling towards Jesus when Jesus starts to apply that title to himself, right? But think about what Jesus does in what we've seen in the Gospel of John. He's taken that I am and is built off of it and given us more revelation and more clarity about who God is, right? Jesus, as God, I am the good shepherd, right? I am the bread of life. 
Think about the character of God that is revealed in the statements that we've seen in the Gospel of John and what it says about God, right? That he is the good shepherd who will lead us by the still waters, even if it means going through the valley of the shadow of death, right? He is the bread of life who will satisfy our deepest longings and desires, right? Jesus says, I want you to keep them in your name. I want your name to be fulfilled. I want us to be the good shepherd, to be the bread of life for these people, for these disciples. It's been expounded upon in these I am statements. He's made the character of God fully known to us through these statements. He even talks about being glorified in his disciples. And one of the ways that he is glorified is through preserving us. Think about what uh, Moses says in Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32 Moses is worried about the name of God or worried about the character of God because he's fearful that if if God brings the Israelites out into the wilderness and then doesn't preserve them, what will that say about God? What what will people think about the reputation of God, right? In In Exodus chapter 32, verse 12, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Right, Moses says, Please preserve this, this people. Please preserve this people for the sake of your name, right? For the sake of your name so that, that the Egyptians can't even question what it is you were doing by bringing them into the wilderness. Now, I think there's great assurance for us as believers to know that God receives glory by keeping us persevering, right? God gets great glory by not losing anybody along the way. Those that are truly saved, making it to the very end. God receives great glory for that. Now the question of Judas comes up, and Jesus addresses that. Because it looks as though maybe one has been lost. And it may be the ability for God to keep the disciples in his name, or for Jesus to even keep the disciples in God's name, has failed at least one individual. And Jesus addresses that with Judas. He says, Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Right? Judas is one that, that is recognized as one who doesn't make it to the end. But we've already seen in the Gospel of John how he's labeled prior to his betrayal. In chapter 6, verse 64 through 71, we see that he's indicated or, or grouped as being a, a non-believer. In chapter 13, verse 11, we see that he's never truly been cleansed. In chapter 13, verse 18, we see that he was not chosen. And what we're seeing here uh, is that he was never really given to Jesus because he never really belonged to God. What we would say, or, or what I would personally say, about salvation and whether one can lose it or not lose it, because that's, that's something that oftentimes will divide Christians as to whether or not uh, somebody who's claimed to be a Christian and then who kind of wanders off and falls away, did they have salvation or did they lose salvation? Um, the best understanding that I have from Scripture is that if you have salvation, if you're truly reborn and have saving faith in your soul, you will have it forever because you have it. If you have it, you never can lose it. And if you seemingly lose it, you never really had it, right? And we see this from two passages of Scripture. John chapter 10, verse 28. 
Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Right, so there's this assurance given that if, if, if we are a sheep, we can't perish and nobody can take us from Jesus's fold. Right, so this is an example of early church life where some people were claiming to be Christ followers, claiming to be saved, and yet they went out and left the church. They abandoned the church. And what that abandonment indicates is that they were never really part of them. Because if they were part of them, what does John say? They would have stayed with us. They would have kept enduring. Right? They would have made it to the end. God keeps us believing. Our endurance is based on his faithfulness, his name, and not our own. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work will complete the work. Right? He starts something and he finishes something. Jesus never starts to save somebody and then fails to finish that work, right? He never starts the process of salvation only to see it fall apart before it gets to the end. He always finishes the work of salvation. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you come to these kind of passages and you, and you, and you really are humbled at, 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 at how much of a role you play in your salvation, right? Because what you see is that God's saving you. And then even when you kind of start to maybe wander and think, well, I got to keep myself saved. I got I to be obedient and do all these things to keep myself saved. You find out, no, it's God that's doing that part too, right? First Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? You're reading that, and you're like, man, that's that's high expectations that, that I would be the type of person who my spirit and soul and body are kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So not only my outward actions have to look great, my inward actions are supposed to look great too. But we're told that God is going to do this work. He's going to sanctify us completely. Then verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. All right, so he who called you to salvation, he's a faithful God. That's his, that's his, that's his description, his character. He's a faithful God, his name he called you, he's faithful, he'll surely do it, right? It would be an attack on his faithful character to not do it. Man, that, that should give us great rest this morning. And if we're truly a believer, our screw-ups last week and our screw-ups that are gonna come this week, right? Our endurance is not hinging on those efforts by us. It's hinging on the faithfulness of God. He who calls us is faithful, he'll surely do it. And then in Jude chapter 24, or not 24, verse 24. There's only one chapter. Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He is capable of doing this. He is capable of keeping you, right? Keeping you in his name keeping you from stumbling to present you blameless. He's faithful. He will surely do it. We believe things about salvation. We trust that God keeps us saved. And then number three, we're called to go, not to leave the world, but to go into the world. I'm being sanctified to make a difference in the world. Romans chapter 12, one and two, obvious 
passage that, we, that many of you are familiar with, that, that we're not to be conformed to the world, we're to be transformed by the renewing of the mind, right? The truth of God's word that Jesus is talking about here, that this word that we're called to keep, this truth that we believe, it transforms us so that we're not conformed to the world. But sometimes it can be so hard to be here and to maintain balance between withdrawing ourselves so much from the world that we lose an ability to impact it because we're so withdrawn. And then the flip side, guarding against immersing ourselves so much in the world that we look so much like it, we can't impact it, right? And so trying to find a healthy balance. And so one commentator that I was looking at uh, broke up our relationship to the world into three perspectives. So I'm gonna steal this from him. So this is not um, original. Number one, He calls it isolation, inoculation, and insulation. So we'll start with the first, isolation. I am to avoid isolation. This is the extreme mindset of withdrawing oneself from the world and its temptations to avoid falling away. So it's it's not out of a bad motivation, right? It's somebody who says, you know what? I am really susceptible to temptation. I'm really susceptible to the attack of the enemy. And because I fear this aspect of falling away, I'm going to do everything I can to withdraw from the world, to isolate myself in such a way where I remove as much temptation as possible in hopes that if there's not temptation, I don't fall away, right? And you can see the extreme examples in history of of those who have just completely cut themselves off from the world so that there's literally no interaction with anybody but themselves, right? Which completely, I don't, I don't know how you can do that and then read scripture and feel like you can do anything that scripture's calling you to do because there's so much of these passages that talk about things we're supposed to do to one another, right? Christians and non-Christians, things that we're supposed to do towards other people in relationships. And so I don't think any of us are obviously guilty of that type of extreme isolation, but I would, I would tend to say that this is the thing that probably is most tempting to us, and that's to cut ourselves off from the lost world because it doesn't always feel wrong to do that, right? Because we can easily justify it with holy type talk about why we don't do certain things because those things are bad and those things are evil and we don't want to be around people that do those things, right? And there's a lot of passages that talk about not being around people who do a lot of those types of things. So it's not an easy come to scripture and say, oh, okay, I got to do that this week. Right? It requires some meditation and some wrestling to figure out how do you interact with this world in a way where you're not becoming part of it, but you're also not cutting yourself so much away from it that you have no impact on it. Right? So this perspective, this isolation perspective, it, it comes from a desire to be faithful to God's truth, but it causes this person to disregard God's mission because they may cut themselves off so much that there's no lost people left for them to impact. We can't remove ourselves so fully from the world that we lose our ability to impact it. I have to avoid isolation. But then number two, I also have to avoid inoculation. Inoculation is the extreme mindset of assimilating oneself into the world fully without any fear of temptation to fall away. So this would be somebody who who almost feels immune to the things of the world, 
that, that this won't impact me, this won't affect me. I can, I can be around these people who do these types of things because I'm a missionary to them, right? So I wanna reach these people and I'm not gonna be impacted by their lifestyle. I'm not gonna be impacted by their choices, but I am gonna be around them a ton so that I can impact them. But oftentimes who they are starts to wear on us more than we start to wear on them. And if we're not careful, we become so much like the world that we can't impact it either. This person has a desire to be faithful to God's mission, but it causes this person to disregard God's truth. We can't immerse ourselves so fully into the world that we're no longer distinguishable from it. This would be a guy like Lot, right? Lot goes and tries to warn people, warn his family about the message that, come, that has come to him about destruction and that they can't take him seriously because they've, they've been living so much like Sodom that this doesn't make sense. This doesn't resonate with us, right? He has immersed his family so much into that culture, it's, his message is kind of lost. So isolation is removing ourselves. Inoculation is, is immersing ourselves, and neither one of us allow, to be, allow us to be impactful in the way that God designed now, I had you guys kind of discussing, well, what does this look like? What does it look like for us to cut ourselves away so much that we lose impact? And what does it look like to immerse ourselves so much that, that we lose impact? And I don't know that we can uh, narrow it down to specific things that we should do or should avoid so that we stay out of this group. Because I think, I think certain things can be abused either way if we're not careful, Right? One area that, that oftentimes um, I, I think comes up in this type of discussion is what do I do with my kids when it comes to their schooling, right? Do I put them in public school where they're going to be around a, a lot of unsaved people and we can have this opportunity as a family to be very missional? My kids can be missionaries, we can be missionaries, and we can impact the world through the public school, Right? Um, then there's the other flip side where people say, nah, I'm not, I'm not really okay with that. I want to be either in a Christian school or homeschool because I want to be kind of away from some of that influence, right? I interview families all the time that come to Trinity. Hey, why, why are you wanting to come here? Well, we know what's coming in public middle school and we don't want our kids subjected to that, right? I'm under the strong belief that there's not a right way to do school for a Christian, I do think you need to understand your purpose for why you've chosen to do it. Because here's the thing, you can, you can say, hey, we're going to be the public school family and we're going to be very missional and intentional. And yet all you do is look for other Christians in the public school and like you just hang on to them, right? So like you're in the public school, but the only kids that your kids hang out with are Christians and the only people that you sit with at the games are Christian people. And so it's like, well, you're there, but, but not really. Like you're, you're missing potentially opportunity to impact the world that is around you, right? And I'm gonna tell you, just dumping your kids in a Christian school doesn't protect them from the world, right? Because I interview a whole lot of kids too that I know we're taking and I know the foundation that they're coming from is real sketch, right? And it's where like, I, I, you know, in Christian school, there's two types of Christian schools. There's the covenant Christian school and the evangelical Christian school. The covenant Christian school is what most of us have experienced probably, and that's the school that says, hey, you have to be a Christian to come here, or your parents have to be a Christian to come here. Like, 
we want the Christian influence at home merging with what we're doing at the school. That's a covenant Christian school. The evangelical Christian school says, we'll take whoever, because our plan is to, is to put the gospel in the, in the life of your kid and see them come to Christ if they're not, right? So uh, an ev- evangelical Christian school will take Buddhists and Hindus and atheists, like whatever. And, and the, the reason that you still put your kid there is because the administration and the teachers are all believers, Right, like so, everything the the structure and the environment that's being created is being done so by believers, but not all the kids are believers, right? Um, but you can you can choose a type of school for your kid, and still miss the purpose if you're not careful, right? You can say, hey, we're going to go to Christian school because we want to we want to uh, be away from the world, and then throw off all filters about who your kid hangs out with, and all of a sudden they are engaged in maybe worse things than they would have been exposed to in a public school. Right? So there's not a right way to do school. Um, but whatever you choose for your child, I think you have to know what's our purpose and, and really embrace that purpose. Right? If it's going to be, hey, we, wanna, we want our kids around other people that aren't like them. And we want to challenge them. And we want them to be able to interact with the lost because we want them to always interact with the lost as they get older. And we want them to be missionally minded. Well, then make sure that that purpose is being fulfilled as you as, you as a family interact with the public school. If you want your kids kind of protected and separated some, there's, there's a healthy balance that can happen in Christian school and in homeschool as well, right? But homeschool doesn't even protect your kids from being completely cut away from the world and, and, and whatnot. Even though there, there's an aspect of isolation there, there's still, if, if their purpose isn't understood and there's not intentionality by the parent, that can go awry too, right? Um, it's not an easy thing to figure out how to balance this, but it is something that we have to figure out because Jesus says, I'm not praying that you take them out, right? I'm not praying that you take them out. I'm praying that you keep them here, but you keep them from the enemy. I want them to be in the world, but I want them to be impactful because he says, I'm, I'm sending them just like you sent me. And we know that Jesus came into the world to be impactful. We also know that he spent a lot of time with those who were responding to his word, but he also spent time with those who weren't, the sinners that needed his word too, right? And I'm just going to tell you, like, like, I fall far more in the isolation grouping than I do in the balance grouping. Um, it is my tendency to gravitate to believers who I believe will help me versus hurt me. Um, I'm, I'm not great at befriending unbelievers. I don't always know what to do with that relationship. Um, and maybe there's a little bit of fear built in, too, that I'm afraid of being overly influenced by them. Um, I'll brag on the Conaways for a minute because I think the Conaways are maybe, maybe the best example in our church of creating healthy balance between Christian friends and non-believers. Um, and I want you guys to know I, I look up to you greatly because I'm convicted whenever um, we go to like an Easter event at your house, right? And I'm interacting with people and like it's not uncommon for them to say, hey, that's so-and-so and so over there. Like they don't go to church or they're not believers, right? And, and like I start to realize like there's there's a, pretty healthy balance here of people who believe in the resurrection, maybe people who don't. And it's because the Conaways, I believe, are very intentional about having relationships that, that kind of cross those borders, right? They've, they've got a healthy group of people that are believers inside this church and from other churches, right? Like if you, if you need to learn how to make friends, I think Bobby and Yvonne are people that you want to be around. Because like, you ever play that game? Like, I think, I don't remember how old I would have been, but like, we used to play a game like write down as many friends as you have, and, and you tried to compare to see who had more friends, right? But, like you would lose every time to the Conaways because I think they have more friends than anybody I've ever 
known, right? I think they have such an incredibly healthy balance, and I think they're modeling this great for their kids too, um, to have this healthy balance of believers that they spend a lot of time with, but they're also not afraid to allow their family to cross into the lives of others who don't believe in Jesus and are able to be a light in that environment, right? I'll brag on my wife because I think my wife does a great job of this too with families at Trinity. Um, the, the moms that she interacts with, there's a couple that she interacts with that I'm just like, like I don't, I, don't, I don't know how you can take some of the things that they say and do, right? But she's also got a group of, at least one mom that I say, man, spend as much time with her as you can because I think she's, she's, a, she's a positive influence. I think she's somebody that, that can help you and encourage you and, and can challenge you. And like, I want her friends with her, but then I'm also, I'm also convicted and challenged by the fact that my wife will spend time with some of these others that, that desperately need her because I don't know if they're believers or not, right? There's gotta be balance in our life where we say, you know what? I've got to have the believing presence in my life. I can't be the individual who, who goes so far into thinking that, well, I can just be friends with everybody that, that's, that's following the world and think that it won't affect us, Right? It will affect us. We've got to have this unity with other believers that keeps us enduring, but we can't cut ourselves off so much that we're not impactful anymore because we don't know lost people to even talk to, right? That brings us to that third perspective. It's the insulation perspective. It's a balanced mindset of living unapologetically holy and missional in the world while heeding warnings to not fall away, right? So, so what's the balance there? It means that, that I'm going to engage the lost world, but I'm gonna do it in such a way where I'm unapologetically holy about the things that I'm gonna do, right? I'm not gonna try to downplay or I'm not gonna try to blur the lines and participate in some of the activities that you're doing if it's something that, that God's called me not to do. I'm gonna be unapologetically holy when I hang out with you. And I'm gonna be unapologetically missional, right? Like, I'm not going to just be content to hang out with you and have a good friendship with you. I'm going to call you to Jesus, because that's what Jesus did, right? Like, he, he hung out with prostitutes. He hung out with tax collectors, but he didn't leave being a, an impure individual or, or a deceptive individual. He hung out with those people, and he called them to respond to the word, right? He's, un, he's unapologetically holy and missional. We have to be unapologetically holy and missional, and we also have to heed the warnings to not fall away, right? That, that we have to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together with believers, right? We can't become so worldly in our hobbies and our interests that it starts to draw us away in the name of missions, even though it's really because it appeals to our flesh, to where we start to, to lose our connection with believers. This person has a desire to be faithful both to God's truth and his mission, we must be active within the world without being an active participant, right? Active in the world without being an active participant. And to be faithful, to, to do this, we really have to be pursuing sanctification because if we're not pursuing sanctification, we will fall prey to the things of the world, right? So we have to be pursuing sanctification. Protection is needed against the world and Satan, now, the encouragement is that God's going to continue to do the work needed to keep us, but Jesus prays that we'll be kept from the evil one. Notice he's not praying that we would be safe and there would be an absence of danger. 
He's already talked about tribulation and difficulties that are going to come. Instead, he prays that we'll be kept safe through the danger. And all this passage has been talking about is the importance of the truth, the importance of keeping the word, the importance of belief. I put in my notes one of the first steps towards a worldly life is to neglect or abuse God's word. The, the, the way you start to move into the world is you start to leave the word behind. You either neglect it completely or you start to reinterpret it. You start to twist it and to change it, to match it up with what it is you now want to do. My sanctification is God's will for me. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I don't think it's a mistake. Sometimes the church is criticized in its conservative sense because it, it harps too much on sexual purity. But in this passage right here, sanctification and sexual purity are aligned so much together because sexual impurity is one of the main reasons why people fall away from the faith. It just is. That fleshly desire to do whatever it is you want to do with your lust, it causes people to fall away from the faith. First Thessalonians Chapter 4, verse 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then how does he describe sanctification? That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Man, we have to be really intentional in this area in our life. Both guys and girls have to be really intentional in this area of life when it comes to sanctification as we try to balance what it means to be in the world but not of it, to be active without being an active participant. This is the area where most people fall. They stop pursuing sanctification in this area. They stop listening to the word. They stop listening to others who can encourage them with the word and they deviate and start to do things that they want to do. And we're warned against it. We believe, we trust, and we go Jesus says, I'm keeping you in this world. You're being sent into this world just like he was sent into the world to make an impact. I want to give you three quick truths that we see from this. And then I'm going to give you some application questions to ponder as we leave. Number one, we have all the divine resources and advantages needed to persevere. In this passage, we see references to the word, the son interceding for us, the fellowship of the church, Right? Like we have all the tools, resources needed to persevere to the end. Number two, we have full assurance that the resources will lead to perseverance. The nature of God and the nature of salvation, right? God's faithfulness and the fact that salvation has never been based on us give us great assurance that if we are truly saved, we will remain saved till the very end. Why? Because he's given us all the divine resources that we need. Right? He's given us the word to hang on to. His son is interceding for us. Right? Jesus is praying for us, right hand of the Father, and he always gets his prayers answered. Right? And on top of that, we're not left in isolation ourselves. We are given local believers in the form of the local church to help us persevere. 
And then I think number three, what we see from this passage is we can expect great things to be given in response to Christ's prayer. We can expect unity. We can expect protection from evil. We can expect sanctification. These are all things that Christ is praying on our behalf for. And he gets his prayers answered. And so we can expect these things. So we can expect when we try to pursue unity with believers that it's going to result in unity, even if it's messy at first. We pursue, we pursue reconciliation with humility. It's going to lead to reconciliation most oftentimes, right? That, that we can be protected from evil. So the enemy can throw everything at us. It's going to be dangerous, but we're going to be kept safe through the danger. And that God's going to continue to grow us and to sanctify us if we're pursuing it. Right? He's going to change us. He's going to mold us into his image. These are three clear truths that we see from this passage. Now let me leave you some application questions to ponder. Number one, how well are we relating to other Christians? Are we pursuing fellowship and reconciliation as needed? So this is the unity piece. Are we doing our part to pursue the unity that's been promised to us? Are we doing our part to, to pursue fellowship? To, uh, to deepen relationships so that there's a deeper unity than just a surface unity? Are we seeking to develop fellowship with other believers? And when we mess up or when somebody else messes up, are we doing our part to, to create environments of reconciliation where healing can take place, where hurt can be forgiven? And one of the things that we're asking you to do right now to even help new families that come to our church, that join our church. We're asking you to just kind of post who you are on the realm, picture of who you are, kind of your background, where you work, that kind of thing. Because we've had numerous people recently that have kind of come through the membership process that are like, and it's, sometimes it's so hard to put names and faces because on the realm, like everybody's face is like that small, right? And you're just kind of like, who is that? Like one person told me recently that uh, they came up to somebody and said, hey, I've been praying for so-and-so. The person was like, I don't know what you're talking about. She realized like she was talking to the wrong person because, again, the picture was like that small, and she couldn't tell who it was that had actually mentioned the prayer request. So that's, that's one way that you can help just people that are moving into our church to, to get acclimated quickly to who people are in this church so that relationships can start to be formed immediately. People that join our church, man, we tell them as, as they come in, we want you to acclimate quickly. We want this to be a place of protection for you where the relationships that are enjoyed in this church will help you persevere, right? But that falls on us to be that welcoming, hospitable type environment where we bring people into our fold, right? And we develop deep relationships. And again, when there's hurt and there's messiness, we're pursuing reconciliation. Number two, I mean, that was like number one. And then number two is like, whew, a lot. How well are we relating to the world? You know, Jesus says, I'm not, I'm, we're not removing you from the world. But if we're not careful, we can functionally remove ourselves, right? Have we functionally removed ourselves from the world? Have we practically conformed ourselves to the world in any areas? Are we manifesting his character to those around us? Jesus begins this section by saying, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. What does he mean by that? I mean, I've made your character known, right? I've taken who you are in a name, and I've made you known to these disciples. That's part of our responsibility now as his disciples here with him gone, is that we're to manifest the name of God to those around us. We are to make him known, his character known to those around us. I want you to spend some time this week thinking, you know, are you prone to, be the individual who isolates too much, 
Are you prone to be the one who inoculates too much and immerses yourself and assimilates too much? Because every one of us in this room has a tendency towards one or the other. And I would say probably a lot of us are in the isolation realm where we're quickly to pull away from the world. There's others that are going to be maybe prone to assimilate too much. But I think we have to know which one we have a tendency towards, and then we have to work against it to bring it back into balance. Right? And I think the, the one to, to assimilate more to the world, like that's easier to identify and it's easier to call out and it's easy to be judgmental towards. Sometimes you can be in that isolation group and feel real comfortable right there. Right? When would you ever not feel comfortable when you're around Christians like all the time? Right? Like, like you're going to oftentimes be like, man, I'm, I'm doing everything that I should be doing. Right? Then you have to ask yourself, when's the last time I had a, a long conversation with an unbeliever? And that'll probably let you know if you're the tendency to be in the isolation group. Right? You got to know which one you kind of lean towards and then work to counterbalance that to be kind of in the middle where you're an individual who unapologetically holy, right? Like we never want to lose, lose sight of the fact that when we hang out with unbelievers or when we are, you know, at the ball field and we see the Christian family that, that we could go sit next to and spend a lot of time with, or we see the, the family that we know is, is kind of broken and messy and we go sit next to them, right? We're not going and sitting next to them to, to not... Um, to not tell them about Jesus, right? Like we, we need Jesus known at some point through those conversations, through that relationship. We also need them to know that, that we're not gonna join in on any, any, any unholy behavior that may come about through that relationship. Unapologetically holy, unapologetically missional, right? Heeding the warnings that come about falling away. That we're not gonna break away from Christian fellowship, but we're also not going to always flock to it in every environment that we come to and miss opportunities where we can be impactful, where we can develop relationships with those who don't know Jesus so that we can have an impact on them and help see them come to Christ. And that's not easy, so that's why I left you with a lot of questions there to contemplate and ponder for yourself personally. Family worship questions. Why is fellowship with other Christians important to our faith? All right, we've got to have that. It's not, it's not abandon that. Number two, in what ways can our family be missional in our current context? A lot of different content, a lot of different jobs represented here, a lot of different ways to school your kids represented here, right? None of them are right or wrong. All of them present all kinds of opportunities, right? It's just a matter of you pondering and saying, here's how we're going to be intentional with the context that we've chosen for our family. This is where we've chosen to work. This is where we've chosen to live, right? Some people get real missional with the place they choose to live, right? Others have to get creative, because they, they live somewhere where there's not a lot of people around them, right? Because they, they maybe sit on 10 or 20 acres, and you don't just walk next door to your neighbor, right? You've got to ride a four-wheeler over to your neighbor, which I would love to be in that type of context, right? I'd love to ride my four-wheeler over to my neighbor's house. But you can be missional in both contexts. You can be missional in an apartment complex where you're going to see somebody every day because you're that close in proximity. You can be missional on a 10-acre lot, right? But you have to kind of recognize what's my context and how do I provide balance in my context, where I'm embracing the Christian fellowship that I have to have, the unity that I need to persevere, but how do I also become very impactful in the way that I interact with the lost world, right? Let's pray together. God, we thank you and praise you um, just for the truth that's contained in this prayer. Um, God, I'm thankful that you give us some insight into how your heart and mind works as we get to see Jesus talking to you and 
what concerned Jesus about leaving his disciples behind. And, and God, we're so thankful that salvation is completely a work of yours, that it's not based on our performance, it's not based on our goodness, it's not a, based on our ability to believe good. Um, that instead, Father, you, you've done everything to save us. You've, you've called us. You're a faithful God. When you start a work, you finish it. And so, God, we're thankful that our salvation starts and ends with you, and, and everything in between is you too. Um, we're grateful for that this morning because, God, we know that if we were responsible for it, we'd mess it up. Um, and so, God, we're eternally grateful that, that you have done all necessary to save us. And, um, Father, we're thankful that, that you've chosen, even though we're not perfect, uh, you've chosen to use us as part of your plan, to communicate the gospel with others. And, and Lord, we're thankful that while it's difficult and, and we much prefer to be with you, as Paul said, that man, it's far better to be with Christ, but uh, God, we're thankful that you do include us in your plan. And so you leave us here, not to, to enjoy this world as best we can until you come, but instead to be missional with, with, with the context that you give to us. And God, I pray that you'd protect all of us from the temptation to isolate so much that we pull away fully from, from this lost world and, and we have no impact on it. But God, even as we try to counteract and maybe try to balance some of that out, help us not to, um, to move so far to the other side that we begin to inoculate ourselves in thinking that, that we're, we're, we're immune to temptation and that we can assimilate so much with the lost world and not be affected by it. God, help us to find a healthy balance where we can be an unapologetically holy, unapologetically missional in the relationships that we have with this lost world. Help us to be intentional with the jobs, with the neighborhoods, with the hobbies, with our schools. God, wherever we've chosen to place our families, help us to realize we have great opportunities to be missional if we'll just choose to, to pursue it. Give us wisdom to know how to do it because it's not, it's not a clear-cut direction for us, God. Help us to, to lean on your Holy Spirit for guidance and how we can be these type of individuals who are in the world, not of it, who are active in the world, but not active participants with it. We trust you and thank you for that guidance. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.